morning. Uh, if you're new, my name's Jamie. Uh, I am the pastor who gets the privilege most Sundays of opening up the scriptures as we gather in this place as both God's people and those looking in on the church, exploring the truth claims of Christianity, wherever you find yourself uh, in that regard. I'm definitely glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, this past Sunday, just to kind of catch you up to speed, particularly if you're new, uh, we launched a new sermon series that's going to carry us all the way through the end of May, essentially. A series entitled Light of the Gospel, a study of the book of 2 Corinthians. It's a book that um, we'll get into this uh, much more in the weeks to come, but that's forever changed my life. It's a part of my own conversion story. Uh, we'll probably get to a passage of scripture weeks from now that... Uh, you will hear a lot of sniffling and see a lot of tears uh, as we work through it um, because of the impact that it's had on my life. Speaking of emotions, it's arguably one of the most emotional of the Apostle Paul's letters. We'll see that as well throughout the course of this series. It's a series that, as I mentioned last week, uh, in, in which we can expect to experience the paradoxical, comfort in affliction, strength in weakness, richness in poverty. It's it's a book that encourages us to trust God in the midst of present uncertainty, knowing that our future is certain. To use the language of the Apostle Paul in this very book, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that awaits those who are, who are in Christ. It's a book that encourages us to boast in our weaknesses, knowing that God's power is made perfect in weakness, his grace sufficient. It's a book that encourages us to live as ambassadors of reconciliation, having been reconciled to God through Christ and trusted with the very gospel message and ministry of reconciliation ourselves. It's a book that encourages us to live lives of radical generosity in light of the radical generosity of Jesus who became poor for our sake so that we might become rich. It's a book that, that not only gives us a window into the Apostle Paul's heart, but his ability to apply the gospel in the moment, in real life situations, in real time, helping us to see the implications of the gospel so that I trust over the course of this series that, that you and I will grow in understanding how the gospel applies to everyday situations and struggles as a result of our time in this book of the Bible, and that as a result, our eyes will be open all the more to the beauty and indispensability of the gospel of Jesus Christ. With that said, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be in verses 3 through 11 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Uh, you can grab one of those Bibles, use it during your time with us. You can take that Bible with you if you don't own a Bible. Um, if you are new, I would strongly encourage you to use that Bible. Uh, normally, we have... Um, the, the scripture references up on the screen behind me, along with quotes from commentators and scholars as we work our way through the passage. We've had some technical difficulties this morning. We won't have that. I only tell you that so that you lean into a Bible, digital or real in your hand as we work our way through this morning. As I mentioned to our team in our pre-service meeting, the church has had a pulpit ministry for thousands of years without keynote presentations. I think we'll be just fine because we have the word of God and the gospel of God. So let me pray for us, and, and we'll get after it this morning. God, thank you for the paradox of the gospel. Thank you that the gospel shows us triumph in the midst of seemingly certain defeat, that on the other side of the cross was an empty tomb. Thank you that you're the God of resurrection and that that doesn't just mean that we look back to the empty tomb, 
2,000 years ago, but we look to the present tense reality of your resurrection power in our very lives and the lives of those around us. I pray, God, as you tell us in this morning's passage that you would comfort us in our affliction and help us to see ways that we can do so for others, that we can be the very comfort of the triune God to those around us. God, would you leverage our suffering, leverage our affliction in a way that the devil would hate for your glory, for our joy and our good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So not to belabor the point, but by way of introduction, particularly for those who were out last week, let let me attempt to catch us up to speed on where we are in the story of the Corinthian church as we dive into this series. If you were around for our study of the book of Acts roughly a year ago, you may recall that Corinth is the city where the Apostle Paul set up shop right next door to the Jewish synagogue in town and proceeded to lead the head rabbi to Jesus along with his entire family. It's the city where Paul spent roughly 2,000, or not 2,000, that would be a lengthy life for the Apostle Paul, two years evangelizing unbelievers and discipling new Christians. We're talking about a newly planted church that had its fair share of issues as evidenced in the letter that's come to be known as 1 Corinthians, a letter in which Paul addresses things like geeking out on Greek philosophy and rhetoric more than Jesus, getting drunk during communion, soliciting prostitutes, suing one another over relational conflicts, and even questioning the validity of the resurrection. So that, it's a wonder that Paul even uses the language of the church in referencing and addressing these people. Many of us would write off a body of believers for far less than what was going on in Corinth. We probably would not fill out a connect card, and we would onward march down the block to the next steeple-adorned building. At this point in the story, roughly a year has gone by since Paul put pen to paper to write 1 Corinthians, and it's been a year filled with a lot of drama. As Paul's received word from his young protege, Timothy, that the church is not in a good place, having been influenced by false teachers, which leads Paul to pay the church an abrupt visit in an attempt to restore the church, a visit that doesn't go incredibly well because many openly rebel against Paul essentially calling his apostleship into question so that Paul then leaves Corinth, heads for Ephesus, writes a letter, sends it back to those in Corinth, particularly addressing those in danger of rejecting him and the gospel. It's a call to repentance. It's a letter that's since been lost, a letter that's referenced here in 2 Corinthians. We'll see that soon enough. And the response to that lost letter is one of revival as many do, in fact, repent, though there's this rebellious minority that remains and is still calling Paul's apostleship into question. That's where we pick up the story as Paul puts pen to paper to write what's come to be known as 2 Corinthians. As we move past the first couple introductory verses, which we looked at last week, where we saw um, God's sovereign grace in rescuing both morally lost sinners and immorally lost sinners As we move past that intro, Paul doesn't really leave us guessing as to what he's looking to communicate. He uses some variation in this morning's passage of the word comfort 10 times, 10 of the roughly 25 times that Paul uses that word in all of his New Testament writings. Alongside that concentrated focus on comfort is a concentrated focus on affliction, as Paul uses the language of affliction and suffering here more than anywhere else in Scripture as well, so that... The focus on comfort 
it's in direct correlation to the focus on affliction. In other words, this is the most concentrated passage of scripture in all of your Bible, all of those thousands of pages with respect to the idea of this paradoxical experience of comfort in the midst of affliction. So that if you come into this place this morning in need of comfort or you know someone who does, and if I were to ask you to raise your hand, every hand should go up in that regard, you've come to the right place. Picking up in Verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 1, we're told, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Paul begins right out of the gate with this benediction. Blessed be the name of the Lord, worthy of praise. Paul's words here in in verse 3 are adapted from one of the Jewish synagogue benedictions of his day, which he Christianizes essentially in bringing Jesus into those very words of blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses similar language here to what we saw last week in verse 2 the fatherhood of God and the lordship of Jesus. The fatherhood of God reminding us that Jesus has purchased our adoption, that we might know the grace and peace of a relationship with our Father in heaven. The lordship of Jesus reminding us that the once crucified servant is now the resurrected king worthy of our glad submission. But but notice that Paul goes a step further here in verse 3, declaring to us what this God of Christianity is like. The father of mercies, the God of all comfort, the kind of father who feels something of a visceral compassion for his children. The kind of God who intimately comforts and encourages his people. That's what our heavenly father is like. That's what our glorious God is like. Psalm 46.1, he's our refuge. He's our strength, a very present help in trouble. That's your God, Christian. He's the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who Paul goes on to say in verse 4, comforts us in all our affliction. I don't know about you, but I love what Paul does here in verse 4. He makes it personal. Right? We've talked about this before. It's one thing to believe that Jesus came to save sinners, that God so loved the world. It's an altogether different thing to swim in the deep waters of Jesus loves me, this I know. That Christianity is incredibly intimate and personal, this relationship with our God, this father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us, pronoun, in all our afflictions. The word comfort itself means in the original language, to make strong together so that it's a relational term, not to be confused with the individualistic idea of comfort that pervades our Western culture, but rather the the kind of encouragement that comes in and through the very presence of God himself. The kind of encouragement that if you were around for the Acts series, you may recall that Paul himself experienced in the very city of Corinth in a moment of real crisis. Paul experienced a little bit of ministerial PTSD, you might say, having been pummeled by the waves of circumstance, beaten with rods in Philippi, we're told, rejected and mobbed by the Thessalonian Jews, publicly mocked in the city of Athens. And we're told, Acts, chapters eight, uh, Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, that God met Paul there. You'll notice if you go to Acts 18, it's the only red letter part of that section of Scripture right in the midst of his discouragement and fear. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Jesus commands Paul, don't be afraid and don't allow the pummeling waves of circumstance to keep you from your ministry of spreading the gospel. 
underneath those commands, this great promise and comfort, Jesus goes on to say, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. That's the kind of comfort that Paul's talking about here in his follow-up letter to the church in Corinth. The kind of encouragement that comes in and through the very presence of God. That the one who holds stars in their place, Hebrews 1, the very clouds, the dust of his feet, it's that God who declares, I am with you. You're not alone. You're blood-bought, Christian. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Unless we think, as sometimes we're inclined to do, that our experience of hardship and affliction is somehow the exception to the rule, Paul says that this is a God who comforts us in all our affliction, which is why I think, and it's a subtle detail, but notice that Paul uses the plural language of sufferings in this morning's passage alongside the singular language of comfort. Paul will go on to, to present us with a laundry list of sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, very famous passage where Paul tells us about imprisonments that he experienced, countless beatings, a stoning, three shipwrecks, adrift at sea, traveling dangers, hunger and thirst, exposure to the elements, anxiety for the churches that he had planted, that Paul could give us a list like that Diverse in, in its expression of sufferings, plural, while presenting us with a God whose comfort, singular, is sufficient to cover every kind of anguish. Amazing. So that, I dare say, that we could just spend the rest of this day, if we chose to do so, sharing stories of how God, God has comforted us in different experiences of, in times of affliction, and we run out of daylight before we'd run out of stories. The God of Christianity, he's a sovereign king and loving father worthy of our trust, particularly in the midst of our times of suffering, particularly in the midst of our discouragement and fear. We could just stop there and walk away encouraged this morning, reminded that we worship a God who comforts uh, his people in their affliction, that, that God is not aloof. Whether you feel the sense of his presence or not, he cares about you. He wants to meet you in the midst of your discouragement and fear with visceral compassion, with the comfort of his very presence. But wait, Paul says, there's more, as if this were some Christian infomercial. He doesn't stop there. He goes on to declare that there's even more purpose in the sufferings of the Christian. That yes, our experience of affliction draws us deeper into an intimate relationship with our comforting God, but our experience of affliction does so much more as it gives us a ministry that, that you and I would not otherwise have. That Paul says, verse four, God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, he says, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, verse six, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. That God gives us a ministry in and through our experience of affliction and the comfort we receive from God in those experiences of affliction. 
particularly those afflictions that come as a result of our union with Christ, as we take up our cross and follow him, like the Apostle Paul. On the one hand, notice that it's a ministry of evangelism. Notice that Paul declares that his afflictions are for the comfort and salvation of those in Corinth. That he sees his sufferings as a a means of winning over his opponents, the rebellious minority in danger of rejecting him and the gospel. His sufferings, the very means of helping them to see the very paradox of the gospel. God's power made perfect in weakness. Most clearly evidenced, you heard me pray a moment ago, by the cross and empty tomb. So that one of the greatest evangelistic opportunities that you and I have, it's declaring in the midst of our our greatest hardships that Jesus is enough. It's letting people see us cling to Jesus and the comfort of his presence in the midst of our moments of greatest pain and heartache. So that one of the applications of this morning's text would be this, Don't waste your suffering. Don't waste those dark nights of the soul. Use them to crush the devil of hell by proclaiming the sufficiency of Christ, the God of all comfort, in the furnace of affliction. That God can and does use our seemingly irredeemable sufferings for the salvation of others. On the one hand, it's a ministry of evangelism. On the other hand, it's a ministry of discipleship. For the comfort of the saints, Paul says, as we empathetically meet others with the same comfort and affliction that God met us. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of those dark nights of the soul that seemed absolutely purposeless in the midst of them, that God then brought back around in a relationship, in a dialogue with someone experiencing their own similar dark night of the soul. Many of you have heard me share this before 2018 was a rough year because for the better part of roughly 15 months, going back into the latter months of 2017, I walked through a season of a battle with depression like I had never experienced before to the degree that it caused me to question, should I still be pastoring? By, by, by result of that, I had friends who put books in my hands to read about the life of men like Charles Spurgeon who battled depression their entire lives, and, and God... Um, out of that, in his kindness, couldn't see it in the midst of it, but in the latter part of that experience, birthed a ministry and opportunity to meet with a handful of others in our church and to talk about how the gospel speaks into even those darkest moments of anxiety and depression, a ministry that I would have never had otherwise. And I'm thankful for that. Even recently, um, I lost my grandfather, one of the great father figures in my life, in November of 2018, and was asked to preach his funeral, the last thing that I wanted to do in that moment, and since then have seen God provide multiple opportunities to hand off the very sermon notes from that funeral preached to others in our church who were asked to speak at the funerals of their loved ones and were wrestling with what to say and how to bring the gospel to bear in the midst of that so that a ministry was birthed. This is a God who who loves to orchestrate the greatest good from the greatest tragedy. Again, look no further than the cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ. What greater tragedy in all of human history than the slaughtering of the Son of God, through which God brought about the greatest triumph the world has ever known, the death of death in the death of Christ, as John Owen says it. This is the kind of God, if we wrap our minds and hearts around who he is and what he does, that has the power to establish in his people an unshakable hope 
Paul says it as much in verse seven. Our hope for you is unshaken for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. That the experience of God's comfort in affliction, whether directly through him or through his presence through his people, has a way of creating in us an unshakable hope. An unshakable hope because we're loved by an unshakable God. The, the kind of hope that, that God not only forges in us personally and intimately, but, but what we then get the privilege of bringing into the lives of others in desperate need of that same unshakable hope. So that there's great irony in the book of 2 Corinthians. This is a letter that Paul's writing in the midst of a people who are questioning his ministry credentials because of his afflictions and sufferings. Isn't it ironic that those opposed to Paul would look at his sufferings as a ministry disqualifier when those very sufferings are the means by which God used Paul to comfort and strengthen other believers. And to be sure, just a little theological rabbit trail off to the side for about 15 seconds, suffering is not something we should go looking for. Paul never declares suffering to be a virtue, but it is a normal part of the Christian life. In the words of one scholar, suffering is a page in the textbook used in God's school of faith. Not always the result of personal sin. Not always the result of lacking faith. Suffering for Christ was an honor for Paul. An opportunity to participate in Jesus' ministry of strengthening and comforting other believers. So that what Paul is saying, if we could really boil it down for the Christian, is that every single life experience you have has meaning. It has purpose. It has significance. The experiences of both laughter and weeping, to use that language of the author of Ecclesiastes. The experiences of both dancing and mourning. None of it's wasted by God. God leverages it all for his glory, our good, and the good of others. So that we don't leave Paul's teaching on comfort and affliction in, in the academic realm of theory. He goes on to give us a personal example in verse eight, this example that all the more helps to make sense of how God works in the lives of his people through this imagery of death and resurrection. Look at verse eight, it says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that, Paul says, was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Not really sure what Paul's referencing there. He leaves us without a number of significant details so that we're left to speculate as to what experience he's talking about. What we do know, because he tells us this explicitly, is that he was being crushed underneath a weight that he couldn't possibly bear, helpless in his own strength. Notice, and I think this is critical, particularly in our context where we're inclined to hide behind our well-manicured lawns and our pressure-washed siding and, and make it seem as though all is going well with us. Notice that Paul doesn't diminish his suffering, though there are some who see his suffering to be an indication that he's not, in fact, an apostle. If anyone had reason to hide his suffering, it would have been the Apostle Paul. What does Paul do? He declares just how drastic his suffering truly is. Brought to the end of himself, physically and emotionally. 
despairing of life itself, feeling as though he had received the sentence of death, which as we know, is the perfect opportunity for God to flex with resurrection power. The same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead. So that burdens that are beyond our strength, they're meant to bring us face to face with the insufficiency of self-reliance. So that we might more deeply rely on this God of resurrection power, a God who raises the dead, verse nine. And notice, it's not a past tense verb, though that's true. The word is not raised, but raises. It's who God is. It's what God does. So that if we could take that that imagery of death and resurrection, I would say it this way. Afflictions bring us to the end of our rope and a death occurs, the death of self-reliance. And from that grave, the God of all comfort raises us up, a resurrection from the dead, resurrected to a deeper reliance on him. And what happens as a result of that is that God shows the world that you and I are not the main characters in this great redemptive historical drama. He is the God of all comfort and resurrection power, a God whom we can trust in the midst of present difficulty on the basis of his faithfulness in the past and the certainty of our future so that he gets the glory not only for our deliverance from suffering, but for the comfort and strength he gives in suffering. Paul goes on to say in verse 11, the last verse of this morning's passage, he says, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. I love the way Paul closes out this section of the letter. He's just declared that this is a God who raises the dead, the God of resurrection power. Is it true that that this is a God who moves mountains? Yes. Is it true also that prayer moves God? Yes. Hey, Paul knew that as well as anyone, so that he would say things like, Philippians 1.19, I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Colossians 4.3, pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. 2 Thessalonians 3.1, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Paul knew that God doesn't just ordain the ends, he also ordains the means. So that if you come in this morning wondering what is the point of prayer in the Christian life, I remember hearing by way of an illustration, I believe it was John Piper several years ago, which helped to make sense of it for me, the, the illustration that you know, God has ordained that nails going into boards would be uh, the way that things would be constructed, one of the ways that we would create, that we would be culture makers, that we would build things with our hands. But in ordaining that, God didn't then determine that we should foolishly stand with nails held up to boards waiting for them to burrow their way into the wood. But rather, God also ordained that hammers be the means by which nails go into boards. Similarly, God has ordained that prayer be the hammer, the means by which he's moved to act, the means by which his decreed will should come to pass. And in that, prayer is an opportunity to glorify God 
as we give thanks to him for the blessings he grants through our prayers. Philip Hughes, in his commentary on this morning's passage, says this on prayer. He says, Prayer is indeed a mystery, but it is stressed over and over again in the New Testament as a vital prerequisite for the release and experience of God's power. It is true that it is God who delivers and that God stands in no need of human prayers before he can act on behalf of his afflicted servants. Yet, there is the manward as well as the Godward aspect of such deliverance, and the manward side is summed up in the duty of Christians to intercede in prayer for their fellow believers who are enduring affliction. He goes on to say, don't miss this, in prayer, human impotence casts itself at the feet of divine omnipotence. Thus, the duty of prayer is not a modification of God's power, but a glorification of it. So that, this is the brilliancy of the Apostle Paul, we end this morning's passage right where we began, with worship. Our faces turned upward, giving thanks to God, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. I'll leave you this morning with the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, which asks, what is thy only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is this, according to that catechism, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. That ours, according to the Apostle Paul, is a God who has visceral compassion for his children. Ours is a God who intimately comforts and encourages his people like Paul in the city of Corinth, right in the midst of our discouragement, right in the, in the center of our fear, saying, do not be afraid, for I am with you, giving you a ministry in the midst of your hardships that will impact eternity, forging in you an unshakable hope, causing you to more deeply rely on me rather than yourself. And that's good. That glorifies God, and it's for our joy and our ultimate good. In a moment, we're gonna worship the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction in a number of ways. Continue to worship through song with an opportunity to sing to him, to praise him for who he is, this father of mercies, this God of visceral compassion who's not aloof but is present in the midst of our sufferings and hardships, who loves us with a deep, deep love, a love that would send his son to die on behalf of sinners like you and me. You have an opportunity to worship through communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. There are tables to either of my sides and one in the back uh, near the coffee. We take the bread here representing the broken body and dip it in the cup representing the shed blood of Jesus. What an opportunity this morning to celebrate power made perfect in weakness as we come and receive of the elements. We have this, this imagery of seeming defeat at the cross of Jesus Christ, out of which was birthed the greatest triumph the world has ever known. Knowing that that's our God, that's what he does, and he does it in our very lives in different ways. 
as we continue to walk this path toward glory.